Okay, good to see everybody here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we pray that as we come to the end of our studies on 1 Samuel, we once again concentrate our minds and with the Holy Spirit working our hearts, really understand uh, who you are and how we should relate to you as we study the last few chapters of 1 Samuel and to see the life of David. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to ask you a question again. Uh, asking you a lot of questions these days. Okay, when is the last time that you needed someone to help you? Okay, when is the last time you needed someone to help you? And I, I mean, not someone where you know you go to the NTUC and say you know you really need to find the toothpaste section or where to find the soap. But when is the last time where you felt really, really helpless? really, really lost and really stuck and you needed someone to help you. Uh, can you think of anything? I guess for many of us, uh, it will be hard to find such a time to think of uh, where someone really helped us because we couldn't help ourselves. And I think the reason is because we are so good at being self-sufficient. Uh, we have the money to buy the things that we need. We have the skills to find what we need. We have the knowledge to get the answers which we need. And it's very hard for us, I guess, to find a time where we really, really need help from somebody. And I think that that was the case with uh, David, as we've seen in chapter 27. Uh, he'd become very self-sufficient. He was a great warrior. He was a great leader. He had 600 soldiers. He had the EQ, IQ, everything. And he, in chapter 27, said, well, basically, I don't need anybody. I'm going to do it myself. He went into the DIY mode. In chapter 27, we saw how he DIY'd it by going without God. He said, I'm not going to listen to God anymore. I'm not going to ask God what to do. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to go into the Philistine country and I'm going to live there and I'm going to find protection there. But the only problem was that in order to live in the Philistine territory, he had to make a deal with the enemy king, King Akish. And he served King Akish so well and uh, he pleased him so much that at chapter 28, we saw that King Akish basically invited him or forced him to come with him to battle against his very own people, the Israelites. So in chapter 28, verse 1, it says, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Akish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And that's where the story is taken up in chapter 29. Because in verse 1, it continues on where we left off in chapter 28. So in chapter 29, as we read today, the Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Akish. So what happened here, if you look at this map, is that... Uh, there were five main uh, Philistine cities, Gaza, Eshkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And here is Ziklag, where David was. And basically, they all met together at Arthek, where they would uh, basically have a staging area. Arthek is sort of on the border between uh, Israel and Philistine. So they would stage the army there, and then they would go to Jezreel, where they would fight against Israel. 
So here was a major battle that they were committing to. All the, if you look there in verse 1, it says that very clearly, all the forces of the Philistines were gathered there, and the emphasis is on the word all. And this was going to be a very, very big battle. And uh, the Philistine army was very impressive. Uh, they marched in their hundreds, and not just in their hundreds, but in their thousands. Now, it's not hard to imagine this great Philistine army because in chapter 13, the very same thing happened the last time the Philistines came out against Israel. So, you remember the last time the Philistines came out against Israel? It said that there were soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So, it was a huge army, right? And at the back of this army was David and his 600 men. They were dwarfed by this huge Philistine army. And what a terrible position for David and his men to be in. 600 of them stuck at the end of the Philistine great contingent. And now, there are basically two choices open to David and his small 600 force. They either fight for the Philistines against God's people, or they fight against the Philistines and they probably get killed by all these thousands and thousands of Philistines. There's really nowhere that there seems to be for David to go. He's between a rock and a hard place. In verse 3, they gather in Aphek, and the commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or you will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favour than by taking the heads of his own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, as they gathered in uh, the military parade in Afek, they wanted to review all their forces. And uh, David was serving under King Akish, and uh, the, the military commanders, who would be different from uh, the king of uh, King Akish, they were reviewing all the military units at their disposal. And they're reviewing them, and all of a sudden they say, Hey, what's happening here? Who are these Hebrew people at the back of all our forces? And who is the guy who's leading them? Isn't this David, the guy who kills people like us? What is he doing there? And these commanders were military men. Okay, they were not like King Akish. Uh, as we've seen, King Akish seems to be quite a gullible person, quite a naive person. Now, the, the Philistines had learned from the past never to trust uh, the Hebrews in fighting against their own people. Now, if we remember in chapter 14, the very last time again they fought, what had happened? The Hebrews, who also, we don't know why, had gone across to the Philistines, in verse 21, when they had seen that the Philistines were losing, what did they do? They turned back against their own... Uh, they turned back to the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, and they turned against the Philistine people who they aligned with before. Alright, so in chapter 14, it says that the Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were Saul and Jonathan. So these uh, military commanders, they'd probably been to their you know, the officers' training camp or whatever, and they realized, okay, we won't make this mistake again. We are not going to let these Hebrews do us twice. What are these people doing behind us? 
And I think that everything hangs here in the balance as we read the story. Right? There is the, the, the naivety and the gullibility of King Akish versus, I guess, the logic and the hard-headedness of the military commanders. There is the influence of King Akish versus the influence of the military commanders. And that the outcome of what's going to happen to David and his men all hangs in the balance here between the interplay of those things. But then as we see, Akish is a weak king. Right? I mean, as we read through the whole of chapter 29, it's all about Akish. And Akish just keeps saying to, to, um, to David, you know, how good you have been to me. Even in verse 9, he says, look, you have been as pleasing to me in my eyes as an angel of God. Now, this Akish seems to be totally taken in by David. But, the military commanders are not, and they overrule Akish. And because Akish is a weak king, he doesn't get his way. He doesn't force his point of view across. And as a result, just like that, the situation for David and his men is resolved. The naivety and gullibility of Akish cannot sway the logic and experience of the military commanders. So as we read the whole of chapter 29, how are we to understand it? Is it by chance or good luck? Good fortune that somehow David finds himself out of this situation. Well, as we've been reading from the whole of chapter 1 to now, we know that nothing happens to David by chance. It is because God was working to deliver David out of the hands of the predicament that he was in. And what a mighty God he is, isn't he? Because God actually doesn't just work among his people, he works through the actions and the thinkings of even God's enemies, the Philistines. And God makes this seemingly impossible situation resolve itself so simply. In the, as uh, they make their way back, if you look at this map, David is in Afek here, and they make their way back all the way to Ziglag. Okay? And they've escaped their totally you know, airtight situation without doing anything. And they're probably rejoicing. They're, they're going back in the, in the three-day journey from Arctic to Ziglag, and they're really happy. They're probably singing songs, patting themselves on the back. You know, it would feel like the last day of exams, all their year-end bonuses at once, all their holidays come at once. They were really happy. But then as we come to chapter 30, we see that from the very heights of their happiness at this I guess, lucky escape if they don't see that God is doing it. And this wonderful escape, then they come down to the very opposite emotion, the depths of despair. Because in verse 30, when David and his men finally reached Ziglag at the end of this long 60-mile journey, on the third day, they, what did they find in verse uh, 1 of chapter 30? They find that the Malachites had raided the Negev and the Ziglag. They had attacked Ziglag and burned it had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and the sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they found they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinom of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Kamal. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. 
Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So in two days, they'd gone from the happiest of happy to the deepest despair. If you look at the word there, it says there in verse 6, David was greatly distressed. Now, this is like the, the most strongest word that you can use to describe how despairing David was. It's, it's, it's exactly the same word that you find in the last chapter, in chapter 28, when Saul was in distress. It's the same word. Saul was in great distress because the Philistines were fighting against him and he had no answer from God. Well, it's the same word here in verse 6. David was greatly distressed because everything was lost and the people wanted to stone him. Now, why did David feel so bad? Why was he in such great distress? I guess it was everything. It wasn't just that thing, but it was everything that was happening. Because whose idea was it to come to Ziklag? It was David's. That's what the men were thinking. It was your idea, right? Remember in chapter 27, verse 1, you were the smart elect who said, okay, let's escape. We don't want to keep living in caves anymore. Let's find a place to settle down. There's this really nice retirement village out west, right? out in Perth somewhere, right? or Canada, and we're going to find peace and quiet, and uh, King Saul will never bother us. You know, you, you'll be able to raise your families. You have a, you know, all of you have five-bedroom houses, lots of land to raise your animals. And now, it's all gone. See what had happened to David. As you come here to chapter 30, we see that David had put all his faith in Ziglag. Right? He had trusted that Ziglag would be some place where they could settle down, find the peace and security they were looking for, where they would never have to run around again. But it was an absolute disaster. It all been a lie, an illusion, and a falsehood. Because when they came back, what they found was a smoking town, and they found that Ziklag had not protected them and had not saved them. See, if you look back on the map, and before they went to Ziklag, all the numbers, right? Remember David, over the last chapter, so many chapters that we've been looking at? David had been running around all the way, all over Israel, to Moabite, to Philistines. And yet, during this time, he had been kept safe. His families, the families of the people who followed him had been kept safe. And why was that? What had David put his faith on when they were running around in Israel and Saul was chasing them? David has put his faith in Yahweh, in the Lord God. He had relied on Yahweh to protect them and that faith had been shown worthy. But now he had put his faith in the Philistines and the Ziglag and that faith had shown to be an illusion. Now, I think as we just look at this passage, as we've seen chapter 27, 28, 29, we can sort of see that David made a great mistake. He turned away from God and put his faith in something else. And that something else had become like a false idol to him, a false god, which had let him down. I wonder whether that can be something that we can think about and resonate with us. Do we ever take our faith away from God and put it in something else? Because whatever we put it in on, whatever it is, 
something real, a person, some dream, some hope, money, prosperity, it will always let us down. I'm going to read you a quote here uh, from Martin Luther. Okay, uh, Martin Luther is a great performer and he said, A God is whatever you, we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that I tell you is your true God. And I think that for, for David, for ourselves, that can often be true, isn't it? We put our trust in somebody or something or some hope, but really, it's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. It's a lie of the devil. It can be your money. It can be your power. It can be your position. It can be people's approval. You think you can find peace and security there, but in the end, it's a lie. It will let you down. Now, I guess if you ever have a opportunity and you are tempted to put your faith in something else. I was thinking there are two questions that you can ask yourself. I was reading in this book. If you want something more than you want God, you have to ask yourself this question. Is it because you think that this thing offers you more than God can offer you? If you want something more than, than God, you have to ask yourself, is that because you think that this thing offers you more than what God can offer you? Because David thought that Ziglag could offer him something more than what God could offer him. Peace, security, safety. If you fear something more than God, do you really believe that that something is more powerful than God? If you fear something more than God, is it because you really believe that that something is more powerful than God? Because David feared Saul, more than he thought that God could protect him. I wonder whether for ourselves we, 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 we face that fear sometimes. We fear people. We fear circumstances. We fear situations. But do you really believe that God is not more powerful than the person that you fear or the situation that you fear? Well, I think that if you look at this passage, David was shown that he should have trusted in God. And he should have really trusted in God to be greater than even Saul, the king of Israel. So now as we come to verse 6, we see that David is, is really at the bottom of his despair. He's hit dirt bottom. There's nowhere for him to go. He cannot DIY himself. He cannot find a way out of this situation. He's lost everything. There's just smoking ruins. And what does David do? In verse 6b, at the end of verse 6, he says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bessal Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. 
He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food and drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to and where do you come from? He said, I am Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Keratites and some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them rode away, except, sorry, got away except 400 men, young men who rode off on camels and fled. And David recovered everything that Malachites had taken, including his two, his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. Now, from the bottom of his despair, with nowhere to go in his darkest hour, who does David turn to? He turns back to God. Right? He turns back to God. He calls on God. And the first thing we see is, it says there in verse 6, that David found strength in the Lord God. It is a picture of turning back in faith to God. He found strength in God. He didn't find strength in the Philistines. He didn't find strength in himself. He didn't find strength in the advice of other people. He turned to God. He relied and trusted in God and His power and His promises. Then David turned to Abiathar the priest and said, you know, bring me the ephod and, and let's inquire of the Lord. Now, as we said over the last few uh, weeks, we don't know how this uh, ephod thing works. The Bible doesn't tell us. The ephod is what the priest wore. Okay, it's like a big robe. That's, that's what uh, the, the, the priest wore. And in the ephod contained this thing called the Urim and Tumim, which again, we don't know what, how it works, but it is a means by which God spoke to his people. And David, on turning back to God, called for the ephod and said, okay, let's speak to God and, and ask God, what should we do now? And God answered them and said, look, pursue them, you will overtake them, you will rescue your people. And what does David do? He listens to God and he obeys God. In every way, David has turned back from his wrong decision and turned back to God. And how does God respond to him? Now, uh, I guess if you were God, how would you respond to David? I guess being petty human beings, maybe you're not petty, I'm petty. I would sort of say, ah yeah, David, you know, you turn back against me, right? Ah, yeah, I let you steal in your, 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 your anxiety for a little while. You know, serves you right, right? You know, you didn't listen to me. Uh, I don't know, do you ever say that to people? You know? Yeah, like, you, you know, you did that, so serves you right, lah. But David's plea to God is not met with a, a God who is petty or angry or vengeful. But, but God here is merciful. God here is loving. God here welcomes David back with open arms and guides him and leads him to, I guess, a recovery of everything that he's lost. Now, as we look at the actual rescue itself, we have to see 
God's hand in everything. We may not have seen God's hand before in chapter 29 with Akish and the military commanders, but here it is in full view. Everything that happens here is because God does it. The first thing is, we have to realize that when David went after whoever raided Ziklag, he doesn't know that it's Amalekites. We know it's Amalekites, but he doesn't know it's Amalekites. The Amalekites didn't leave their calling card. They, you know, uh, whatever, postal code, you know, back in Malachite, where we came from, he, they don't know where he, they, who raided the place, isn't it? The secret to the discovery is the Egyptian. But just how, what a coincidence it would have been to bring the Egyptian into the, the, the sphere of David and his men. First of all, the Egyptian was sick. Now he got sick, the slave. And his master didn't kill him and didn't keep taking him along. But instead, he just kicked them out of the, car, uh, the camel, right? Kicked them out of the car. He was sick. But he wasn't sick enough to not survive three days and three nights without eating or drinking. And you imagine, in the big wide desert that is the Middle East, he managed to run into the force of David. 400 men and David. Just so happens that they run into this Egyptian. And because of meeting this Egyptian, they know, okay, it's the Malachites who did it, and we know where they are, because the Egyptian can tell us. And not only that, when they finally are shown where the Malachites are, they are able to defeat a much greater, bigger force than they are. So, if you read the narrative very carefully, how many men does David have? 400, right? So, uh, I don't know why I still got another map up there. But anyway, he left them at this Basel uh, River. So he had 600 minus 200 equals 400. He fought all day against the Amalekites and how many Amalekites escaped? 400. So the force that David encountered must have been much bigger than his own force. 400 people escaped and you've been fighting all day. You must have killed a lot of people, right? But yet... God let David win because they were not organized, they were all drunk. God was the one who made this possible. And at the end of the day, when they finally count all the plunder, all the people, no one is killed, no one is dead, none of the sons and daughters and the wives are missing. This is truly a miracle. God, if we had thought that he did an impossible rescue back in chapter 29, does it again in chapter 30. And I think there are two things here again that we learn about God. And the first thing is that He is a merciful God. Right? He's a really forgiving God because He didn't have to do all these things. He didn't have to give everything back to David and his men. But He chose to do that when David turned to Him. I see, when I read this story, it reminds me so much of... Uh, I guess Jesus and the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, so if you, if you look in Luke chapter 15, uh, you all know the story. Okay, I'm going to be looking at two passages in the New Testament after this, so I hope you can remember them. In fact, you can look it up yourself. But in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, I mean, everybody knows it or should know it. It's about how, you know, there was this son, asked for inheritance, went off, then he spent it on prostitutes, then he got no money left, he was eating and sleeping the pigs. Then in, chapter, in verse 17, what happens? He came to his senses. 
And he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. I mean, isn't in many ways, isn't what's happening to David here the same as what happens in the parable of the prodigal son? David has reached rock bottom. He's lost his wives, his children, his possessions. His own followers want to stone him. He comes to his senses and he turns back to God and God welcomes him with open arms. It's the same thing as the prodigal son. He comes to his senses too, turns back to his father and God welcomes him with open arms. He's filled with compassion, it says. That is the sort of God that we have. That is the sort of God that we worship. That is the sort of God that loves us and is always welcoming us if we are willing to turn back to Him. I know of this uh, friend of mine. He's a good friend of mine. And uh, he's from Helping Hand. I think some of you may know him, Jeffrey. And I remember Jeffrey used to tell me at one stage of his life, I think he's a lot older now, but I remember when he was quite old, he used to say to me that he had spent more than half his life in prison. Can you imagine how old he was? In the, you know, he, he'd spent more than half his life in prison. But even in the depths of his despair, every time he, he, he sinned, he turned back to God, and he knew that God would welcome him back. Because that's the God that is portrayed in the Bible, isn't it? You can fall, you can stumble, but you can turn back to God, and He's willing and wanting to take you back. I've done classes for people in Christianity Explored and baptism classes and some people say God will never accept me. I've done too many wrong things in my life. I've done too many bad things in my life. But that's not because of you know ourselves. God doesn't accept us because we've done good things but God accepts us because of His love for us of His mercy for us. He knows we've done bad things. We are all like David. We've all turned away at various stages. We all turn away every day. We, we sin and make mistakes. But God is like that prodigal son being welcomed by the Father. He's always welcoming us, putting His arms open towards us. So, if you're in that situation today, I don't know, maybe you are or you're not. You turn away from God. You sin against God. You feel that God is far away. Well, don't listen to what the world tells you that, oh, it's because you're a good person that God loves you. No, God always is welcoming people with open arms. He just wants you to turn back. He just wants you to come back to Him and recognize that you are a bad person. Now, the second thing I think that we see here again, as we saw in chapter 29, is that God really does the impossible thing. God is a God who does the impossibly, the impossible things really easy. David had gone his DIY way, the do-it-yourself way. He thought he could protect himself, protect his people, protect his possessions, but in the end, he couldn't do any of those things. He put his faith in Ziglag, but that had been all a lie. In the end, he realized that he needed to turn back to God. 
because he faced a situation where he couldn't do DIY anymore. Only God could do it for him. And I think that for ourselves, we also need to see that God is a God who does the impossible for us. And I think that one of the problems today, as I read much literature and thought about it as well, is that many churches downplay what God does for you. So you go to many churches around, you go to prosperity churches, you go to normal churches which are not focused on what the Bible is saying. They say, oh, you know, God can do so many things for you. And, and they say, well, what can God do for you? Oh, well, you know, He can make you rich, give you money, give you health, give you prosperity, give you relationships. Uh, but the problem is that those are not impossible things. You can DIY all those stuff yourself. The DIY person can still get rich. He can still get money. Or she can still get money. She can still get prosperity. DIY person goes jogging, eats multivitamins every day, doesn't take too much fatty food, takes your statin. You can also have good health. You can do a lot of things DIY. But the Bible says that there's one thing that we cannot do. The impossible thing for us. And that is to save ourselves. Because we are all sinners and only God, through Jesus Christ, can save us. So I was looking at Mark chapter 12, and it's up here. Alright. Is it up here? Oh, is it up? Hey, no, that's not. Yeah, ah, that's right, Mark chapter 10. Sorry, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. The disciples were amazed at his words. Then Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are, pos- are possible with God. And uh, again, when we studied Mark before, we looked at this passage and, and we, we said, Look, for the disciples, if the rich man couldn't be saved, then who could be saved? Because the rich man in Israelite Jewish thinking was blessed above other people. And Jesus is saying, Look, Nobody can be saved. It is impossible for us to save ourselves. It's like going through an eye of a needle, which is the smallest point, right? the smallest opening you can think of, with the largest animal, a camel. But God is able to do it, because God is able to do the impossible. So as we sit here today, the question is, do we rely on God to save us, to recognize that He can do the impossible, or do we try to save ourselves. As we come to the very end of chapter 30, we recognize, or actually David recognizes, that the whole rescue is from God. It is not from himself. I don't know, we might got enough time for one more point. Okay, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Okay, so if you look at the last section, uh, it says there that there were these uh, men, right, They, they all came back to the 200 men they left behind. And the 400 men were saying, well, some of the wicked men were saying, if you look very carefully, it says there, in verse 22, that all the evil men and troublemakers among God's followers said, because they did not go out of us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. But David said, in verse 23, no, my brothers, we, you must not do what the Lord with what with that with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and delivered us into our hands. 
the raiding party that came against us. Instead, the share of the man who saved the supplies is the same as that who went down to the battle. All will share alike. Now, I can understand what the men were thinking. I'm sure that if you were there too, uh, not that God wants to class you as an evil or wicked person, but yeah, I can imagine, right? You, you had run or whatever, jog from Afek to Ziglag. In two days, you're dog tired. You get there, you cry for one day. So you're, you're not only physically tired, you're emotionally tired. Then again, you travel and go and fight again. And then 200 of the people, so imagine your NS, right? 200 of the people are like, oh, I'm very tired now, I can't, I can't go anymore. So you sit, leave them at the, the, the river. Then you go and fight. And you fight, 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 fight for one whole day. You recover everything. Then you think to yourself, who deserves the plunder more? Well, if we are a meritocracy, right? Then you say, well, the one who fought, isn't it? Because he is the one who was fighting all day. He was the one laboring. If you are like a performance-based measurement, right? You get paid for your labor. Then the one who fought should get the plunder. Why should the guy lying by the beach on the river get what I fought for? But David says no, isn't it? Because if it is God who gives, not you who work, then all should share because this plunder is from God to everyone. It is not you who won the battle, but rather it is God who gave the plunder to you. Now, you can come and talk to me about this later on, but I think that this is the same principle which applies to eternal life. See, because eternal life is not something we work for, God has given it to us, then everyone has a share of it alike. Have you been a, a Christian a very long time? All your life? And then the guy who dies the day before, he genuinely gives his life to Jesus Christ. They all alike have a share in the kingdom of God. Do we think that we are more special? Because, oh, you know, we serve in the music team. Oh, Bible study leader, I'm the pastor. And, uh, you know, the person only just came to Christ and then a few weeks later he dies that somehow we are more deserving of the kingdom of heaven. No, wasn't it? Jesus again said the same thing in Matthew chapter 20. Now, this is a very long uh, parable and it's quite complicated. So I'm not going to go through all the complications. You can talk to me about it later. But he uses the same analogy exactly the same analogy as the thinking of the people in uh, chapter 30, isn't it? So Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed, agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and send them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and still found still others standing around. He asked them, uh, why, are you, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired 
and the eleventh hour came, and each received the denarius. So when those who came, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of one of them also received the denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men were hired last. Work, sorry, those men who were hired last worked only one hour. They said. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious that I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. See, the kingdom of heaven doesn't come because of our hard work, but because of the generosity of God. And therefore, when we come before God, we see God as a merciful God, always wanting to love us, and for us to come to Him to accept this free gift of the Kingdom of Heaven. It's not about our work or how good we are, but about turning back to God. As I began the sermon today, I asked you, when is the last time you you needed help, really needed help. Any of you have any trouble with that question? Let me ask you another question. How, when is the, I want you to think back over your whole life and think of ten times you really needed help. Ten times you really needed help. That would be a lot more challenging. Right? But actually, when we consider who we are and stand before God, we need help every day. Because every day we need to come to God and say, look, we can't save ourselves. Only you can save us because you sent us Jesus Christ. Isn't that why we pray every day, forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation? So as we study and look at 1 Samuel chapter 29 and 30, let us truly see the character of God. That He is a merciful, forgiving God. That He is a God who can do the impossible. And most of all, the impossible is to save us. That is why He sent His Son, Jesus. And we need His help every day. Because we cannot DIY our own salvation. We cannot DIY our own sins. Only God can save us. And forgive us our sins. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will understand your true character. That you will cast out of our mind any of the lies or the illusions of this world and of Satan to think that we can go through life doing it ourselves. That we do not need you. That we are capable and strong to do our own thing. Help us to cast out of our mind the, the lies that somehow we can work our way into the kingdom of heaven. For that is a truly impossible thing for men and women to do. Help us also to cast out of our mind the thought that you only love us because we are nice people and lovable people. But help us to see that we only have a relationship with you because you are such a merciful and forgiving God. And dear Father, help us every day to come before you and to turn to you and say, Lord, we need your help. Forgive us our sins. Help us to, to truly uh, be humble before you and to seek your forgiveness. And so know 
that in Jesus Christ we are right before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.